morning our message continues as we uh, work through the book of Luke. and It picks up in verse 41, where we left off last week, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. The word of God beginning in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, They returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of God for the people of God this Sunday morning. And this morning we shift to a new, uh, new sermon series called Feeding the Fire. And this message, uh, it goes by the same title, and I expect that the reasons for both will become evident before I'm done this morning. Now by starting a new sermon series, that means that last week we finished one, which was called Reigniting the Fire. And last time we ended with an invitation to ask ourselves whether we have truly seen Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. We also ask whether he has lit a fire within you. And so we continue on this theme of fire, and I want to take a moment to explain that theme. See, by using the theme of fire, I don't mean to bring to mind the, the destructive capability of it. Rather, I want to bring to mind the sense of a fire that burns within you and me. I want to bring about the sense of what we would otherwise call our lives' passion. We each have passions in life. Or to say this another way, we have strong feelings about things. And such a passion is is the feeling of enthusiasm or excitement for something or about doing something. I spent some time Googling this week about things that that, uh, that people describe as their life's passions. And according to a website called happierhuman.com, there are 13 things that we should be passionate about. Learning, creativity, personal growth, mindfulness, helping others, decluttering, health and fitness, career growth, money management, relationship health, kids, pets, and hobbies. Now, each of those things, I mean, they might be good places for us to focus our energies on. But speaking of focus, see, there's a relationship between one's passion and focus. We might have wonderful intentions with what we declare our lives' passions to be, 
But the benefits of learning or, or the benefits of personal growth or decluttering, they don't arrive unless you focus on those things. And if passion is a feeling that supposedly reveals what we're excited about, well, there's nothing that comes from them, whatever our passions might be, without focus. And interestingly, what we focus on reveals much about us. It reveals to everyone where our hearts really are. I came across a story uh, that comes out of 2014 about the city of Naples, Italy. Then the city was on the verge of bankruptcy and they faced problems with organized crime and they had an underfunded police department. And we might think that that's an easy problem to fix, right? This organized crime and an underfunded police department. You just hire more cops. That's what you focus on, right? The city of Naples didn't have any money to spare to pay for any more police. And naturally, the question comes, where was the money going in Naples? Well, see, Naples had been focused on cleaning up their streets, but their focus wasn't on cleaning up the aspect of crime on their streets. The city was overwhelmed by the expense associated with the initiative to clean up dog droppings on the, seat, on the, on the streets. Well, how was the city going to go about accomplishing that? They required that every dog within city limits have their cheek swabbed so that they can then DNA test every... Well, you know where this goes, right? I confess I came across that story and I found myself wondering if they were going to like do this Maury Povich DNA reveal with dogs lined up like, Hey, Fido, you are not the culprit kind of thing. Anyway, let's bring our attentions back to the subject of focus. Where is your focus these days? Are you focused on the right things? Are you focused on good things? And as a consequence, you're not focusing on what really matters. Well, we see three different expressions of focus in this text, and they're going to serve as headings for our consideration. Those three headings that we'll go by this morning, there's the focus of the parents, There's the focus of the religious teachers, and then there's the focus of the boy. So I want us to turn our attention first to the focus of the parents. Last week, we saw that the earthly parents of Jesus were faithful to the rules and practices involved with being a good Jew, what the Bible otherwise describes as being obedient to the law. If you remember, an eight-day-old baby was circumcised and was given the name of Jesus. Jesus was the name that the angel Gabriel said he would be named nine months before his birth. And following his circumcision, when he was 40 days old, Jesus was presented at the, at the temple as an expression of the dedication of his life to God. Mary and Joseph, they were faithful Jews. And Luke tells us in verse, in verse 41 that the parents' faithfulness to the law did not wane as the years went by. Instead, they continued to do just as the law of God described. In addition to circumcisions and dedications, the Jewish law required Jewish men to attend three feasts per year. Joseph didn't miss the feast of the Passover, and he led his family to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem every year during Jesus' childhood. The law required this annual Passover visit to Jerusalem, and like many other Galilean Jews, 
Mary and Joseph fulfilled their obligation. Now, the annual Passover feast, it was a huge event. Every year, countless numbers of Jews would enter the city. Some estimates suggest that the city's population swelled by six times over during the Passover. Throngs of Jews would move in and move out of the temple in Jerusalem every day. You may be wondering, well, what's the big deal with this Passover? What's the Passover about? Well, the Passover is for the Jew as Easter is for the Christian. By the time you start to read Exodus, the second book of the Bible, the Jewish people have been enslaved in and by the nation of Egypt. And we read the Egyptians forced the Jews to serve as laborers to make the bricks that would be used to construct the grand structures of Egypt. In a final step to free the Jews from their enslavement, God set a plague via the angel of death to strike down all the firstborn children in Egypt. And the angel of death passed over the congregation of Israel who had smeared the blood of a sacrificed lamb on their doorposts. The Passover feast was a commemoration of God's deliverance of God's people. Luke tells us in verse 42 about a particular Passover feast when Jesus, the boy Jesus, was but 12 years of age. The Jewish tradition that reigned during this time would involve introducing a 12-year-old boy to the Passover in Jerusalem because it was agreed upon that a son should begin learning the Torah, or learning the law if you like, no later than about the age of 12. And Joseph, he's a faithful Jew. So he's going to to the Passover in Jerusalem every year, and this year he takes his 12-year-old son to Jerusalem for his first Passover to begin to introduce him to the Torah. Luke tells us in verse 43, the family stayed in Jerusalem for the entire week of the festival observance. In the original Greek, the beginning of uh, of, uh, verse 43 reads literally, when Jesus' family had completed the days of the Passover. Luke tells us that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus were faithful. They observed the entire festival. And this is when things begin to get complicated for Joseph and Mary. As verse 43 concludes, we learn that the family began to pack up and they began to head back home to Nazareth. However, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem unbeknownst to his parents. Joseph and Mary had traveled for about a day before they started asking, Honey, have you seen, have you seen our boy? Have you seen little Jesus? I know every millennial and maybe even the parents of millennials might be thinking, I've seen this in a movie before. The movie starts with the family preparing to take a Christmas trip and the night before, they're set to leave. And everybody had packed all their belongings and gone to bed, bed, only be awakened by the cabbie ringing the doorbell the following day to take them to the airport. At that moment, they realized they'd overslept because the power went out and the alarm clock didn't go off. And the family launches frantically to get to the airport, hoping their plans wouldn't be ruined before the trip even starts. And all the while, the family forgot a son at home. I can't tell you whether the writers of Home Alone drew their inspiration from this account, but I do think the visualization of hurriedness can help us from a familiar film to picture what was happening here. I imagine everybody in Joseph's traveling party was beyond ready to go home at the end of the week. Everybody but Jesus, that is. 
And when you and I are leaving wherever it is that we are, our minds naturally begin to shift to thinking about, well, what's next? Our thoughts change to home on the final day of whatever length of time we've been out traveling. That's where our focus goes. That's where Joseph and Mary's focus went. And so after fulfilling all their church obligations, if you like, Joseph leads his family to return to life back home in Nazareth. You can imagine what must have been going through the minds of Mary and Joseph. A week in Jerusalem was a week away from work for the economically minded. The family was spending way more than they were accustomed to. All the while, no money's coming in. A week in Jerusalem was a week away from routine. Dirty clothes had piled up. And there was work waiting to be done at home. I mean, it's conceivable that they became anxious about restoring order and making up for their week in Jerusalem which has taken their focus away from real life, as we might say. And so they've arrived at this place of anxious hurry for things to return to normal. Remember, Mary and Joseph are not perfect human beings. They're not without sin. They're like you and me. They both need a Savior too. Yet their focus is not on Him. They focus on the wrong things. In fact, if we were thinking back to the book of Exodus once more, in chapter 5 of Exodus, as God had commanded him, Moses told Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that the God of the Hebrews commanded Pharaoh to release the Jews so they can worship the Lord their God. Pharaoh responds to this by suggesting that if there's time for the Hebrews to worship their God, well, they aren't busy enough in their real life about making those bricks that I told you about. In a sense... Pharaoh is telling Moses that to worship God is to focus on the wrong thing. I wonder how many of us spend the rest of the hours in our week, except for the one that we share here, with our hearts ruled by Pharaoh's edict. That edict would cause us to focus on all the wrong things in our lives. Now, don't get me wrong, work is necessary. I mean, and I hope your boss isn't Pharaoh, and I hope your work isn't what the Hebrew people were subjected to in ancient Egypt. But, and God created us to work, and in eternity we'll be doing some form of work. Providing for our families, it's essential, it's biblical. Tending to our homes is required. Yet when anything about our lives becomes our focus, Jesus goes out of focus. Our lives fall into complete disorder. Mary and Joseph had a heart, had heard the, the, the prophet Simeon declare all these wonderful things about that baby boy. That their son was God's salvation, a glory for the people of Israel, so on and so forth. So you'd think that they would protect him with, this, with a first century equivalent of bubble wrap, right? I mean, there's no way that this kid gets out of their sight, right? I mean, does anyone else wonder how they lose the child? The same way that you and I do. When our focus is not exclusively on Christ. It's easy to do this, by the way. The world rewards our busyness today. I mean, it's a thing now to brag about all the hustles we're managing. And by the way, hustle is a word used mostly by people my age and younger that we would otherwise call irons in the fire, okay? 
Yet when our focus comes off of Christ, assuming Him to be only a component of our lives, not the wellspring of our life, we find ourselves wondering what it is that we've lost that's thrown our life into complete disarray. We've lost focus on Christ. We've lost who gives our life order and taste and beauty. Now, it's taken me a while to make that point, so let's focus, let's, let's speak to the focus of the teachers, okay? And after Mary and Joseph realized that Jesus isn't with them or the extended family who traveled with them to Jerusalem, they, they make an about face and they return to the city. Verse 46 tells us that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, three days would account for traveling one day from Jerusalem, learning that he was missing, traveling back the entire second day, and discovering him on the third. So the boy Jesus is there in the temple, sitting with the teachers of God's word, and he's in active dialogue with them. Jesus isn't just soaking up their teaching. He's discussing with them matters of scripture and matters of tradition. And tradition was a strong focus for Jewish teachers then. That tradition of Torah caused the teachers to do two things. You see this expressed in the Gospels, by the way, in two different ways. Caused them first to misunderstand the nature of God's Messiah. And for some teachers, secondly, to fall to performance over grace. Now, speaking to the misunderstanding of God's uh, nature of God's Messiah, as we'll see later in this Gospel, and as you will find the other evangelists recording, it's often found that after performing a miracle, Jesus would speak to those who were witnesses, and he'd say something like, okay, I know y'all saw this, but don't tell anybody about what you saw. If you've ever wondered why he did that, Jesus knew that the teachers of Israel knew the signs of God's Messiah. They knew that God's Messiah would, would be giving sight to the blind, that he would be making the lame walk, that he'd be cleansing lepers, he'd be making the deaf hear, he'd be raising the dead, and he'd be preaching good news to the poor. Jesus knew that some of the religious leadership would recognize him as Israel's Messiah. But their tradition said that God's Messiah would raise an army to vanquish all of Israel's foes. Well, that wasn't the right focus. And interesting, again, with the Passover as the backdrop in this episode, the focus of the teachers of Israel would have known that they were once a people in a foreign land. They were once a people in bondage under the sentence of death. That a mediator, the one who had stood between them and God, came to them with the promise of deliverance. The people of Israel then trusted in the promises of God. They took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And God led them out. And as Jesus had grown in the wisdom of God, he demonstrated himself so confident in the Torah that he could now dialogue at 12 years of age with these teachers. And I wonder if he's beginning to reveal to them that he was the firstborn son of God, whom the destroyer this time would not pass over. I wonder if he was beginning to reveal to them that he was the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about. Oh, that suffering servant who would die on a cross. 
I wonder if he was revealing to them that in his death, that anyone who would trust in the promises of God found in God's Messiah would receive an even greater liberation than what Israel had enjoyed in Egypt. What liberation is that, you ask? It's liberation from the debt of sin that you owe to God. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of our sin is death. Yet the Messiah of God would pay this wage for whomsoever might come to Him in faith to lead all the children of God to their true country and an everlasting home. So there were some who had a wrong focus on the Messiah, that he would, on, on what He would do. And there were others who, prefer, who preferred to focus on religious performance. And when I say religious performance, I mean the idea that someone can earn God's favor. Or if you like, someone can earn God's love, someone can earn God's mercy through religious action and ceremony. And there was a school of teachers in Israel around this time that got really, really, really worked up with how Jewish people dressed and behaved. They found so much comfort in arguing and defining detail by detail what it meant to be a Jew. And by the way, this whole mindset, it hasn't stopped today. There are many Christians, well-meaning Christians, who get worked up around the same things today. And the hyper-focus on detail isn't where, where you and I might necessarily start out. But somewhere along the way, the focus shifts. It's Eugene Peterson who explains it this way. Imagine yourself moving into a house with a huge picture window overlooking a grand view across a wide expanse of water enclosed by a range of snow-capped mountains. You have a ringside seat before wild storms and cloud formations. The entire spectrum of sun-illuminated colors in the rocks and trees and wildflowers and water. You're captivated by the view. Several times a day, you interrupt your work and stand before the window to take in the majesty and the beauty, thrilled with the botanical and meteorological fireworks. One afternoon, you notice some bird droppings on the window glass, and you get a bucket of water and a towel, and you clean it. A couple days later, a rainstorm leaves the window street, and the bucket comes out again. Another day, visitors come with a tribe of small, dirty-fingered children. And the moment they leave, you see all the smudge marks on that glass. They're hardly out of the door before you've got the bucket out. You're so proud of that window. It's such a large and beautiful window. But it's incredible how many different ways foreign objects can attach themselves to that window how they can obscure the vision, how they can distract from the contemplative beauty. And keeping that window clean, keeping that window clean develops into an obsessive compulsive neurosis. In fact, you accumulate ladders and buckets and squeegees. You construct scaffolding both on the inside and the outside to make it possible to get to all the difficult corners and heights. You have the cleanest window in North America, but it's been years since you ever looked through it. 
Friend, the religious window cleaners in biblical times were so blinded by the precision of dotting I's and crossing T's that they could not even see God's Messiah, though he stood before them and walked with them. For them, it was all about rule keeping. And as long as they had morning and evening church, as long as they prayed at the right times, as long as they were baptizing their babies, and so on and so forth, they were confident They were saved. But their hearts were hardened to God by their own self-righteousness. They were proud of what they could do to stay clean and they never saw how filthy their sin had made them inwardly. See, God had arrived in the person of Jesus Christ, abandoning every sense of being the greatest to become the least. And He did it not because any human being deserves it, but because God loves. And God loves to lavish His creation in His grace. Friend, I wonder this morning, are you God's child? Oh, and I'm confident you absolutely want to say yes to that. But what makes you think that you can say yes? Because someone poured water over you when you were a baby? Because you would give anyone the shirt off your back? Because you keep the window of your life spotless? Oh, you might be squeaky clean from all outward appearances, but unless you've come to God in the way that the Lord has described, your heart is as but a stone. and You're dead in your sin. Friend, you heard me. You are not His. And you remain in the filth of your sin. Your heart hardened to the gospel of grace. Well, someone asks, what can wash away my sin? That's a great question. You'll find that answer in, the, in God's book as well as the hymn book. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's Lowry who penned that great hymn. And he says, nothing can for sin atone. He says, for cleansing this my plea. He said, not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can for sin atone. And friend, by grace, Jesus has done all the work to save you. And salvation is free to you if you come to Him in faith, surrendering your life to Him. Finally, we turn to the focus of the boy. Joseph and Mary have discovered their son in the temple and he's holding his own with the Jewish teachers. And interestingly, after recognizing the boy Jesus in the setting, despite this being a place and a time and a culture that were heavily male-driven, it's Mary who speaks up. She says in verse 48, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. I imagine that Mary's focus would have been much like we would expect any mother to do or to be. She had to be wondering about her son's welfare. Was he safe? Was he cared for? Was he looked after? Was he eating? And after seeing him in the temple, finding the answer to those questions to all presumably be yes, I think it's conceivable for another question to have become her focus. I think she asks, Son, why have you treated us so? Because her focus has become relational. She's his mother. Son, why didn't you come searching for us? You didn't tell us what you were doing. 
Son, why haven't you prioritized your relationship with me as your mother and Joseph as your father? Mary's focus was to be number one in Jesus' life. She knew that her son was someone special, yet like you and me, her heart was restless. And in our, in our restlessness, we try to find some rest to our some rest, or we try to find some peace. And we do that in people or in things. When we're young, we're convinced that there's a soulmate out there that will complete us. Yet we only come to discover that there is restlessness yet in our hearts. Some seek to fill that restlessness with things like drugs or sex or one of those things that happier human that says that should be our passions. Learning or serving or fitness. The problem with all of those things, whether you consider those things bad or you consider those things good, is that every last one of those things is temporary. The pleasing effect of alcohol or drugs or sex, it doesn't last. Nor does it satisfy our restless hearts. The problem with learning or serving or fitness is that our minds and our bodies are but temporary things. Our strength leaves us one day. And so are our relationships only temporary. Be them with our parents or our children or our spouses. Because death is the final enemy for us all. If your focus is on temporary things, friend, you will never find rest. But notice, where's the boy's focus? Jesus responds in verse 49. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, verse 50 indicates that, that, that they didn't understand him. And I think they is everyone within an earshot of this. I don't think that they understood that he was announcing that he is God's only begotten son. I don't think that they understood that he is announcing that his focus is set on his father's plan of redeeming all creation and that his heart finds rest in prioritizing his relationship with his father who is in heaven. You may be wondering, did Jesus break a commandment here? Did he, did he not honor his father and his mother as God had commanded? No, he never broke a commandment. Jesus never sinned. He lived a perfect life. What he's showing us here is that all of our relationships are disordered when our relationship with our heavenly father is not our priority. In fact, verse 51 says he minded his parents and we should observe that the health of his relationship with them sprung forth from the primary focus on his relationship with his father. So let me come back to the question that's been lingering out there. Where's your focus? Maybe you've spent the time that I've been up here just trying to answer that question for yourself, and maybe you cannot put your finger on an answer. So let me ask a different but a related question. Are you restless? Are you restless? And I hope you hear me clearly right now. I hope you're listening with your heart as much as you are with your ears. True and lasting and perfect rest is only found in Jesus Christ. His grace can cleanse your heart and clean all of you, enabling you to find that the passion of your life and the main focus of your life 
is the perfect sinless Savior who has saved you from your sin. That Savior who is working to make you to be what God intended you to be. That Savior who will soon return to set every wrong in history right. That Savior who's returning to make everything new. Oh, but there are so many other places or people or things to focus on. And that's the point of this Feeding the Fire series that we started today. We're going to bring Jesus into focus for us. To feed the desire of our restless hearts with the only person who can give us true and lasting rest. And in doing that, next week we're going to shift away from Luke for a little bit. And we'll look at Colossians. But I've got to ask, why would Jesus do this? Well, do what? Everything I'm talking about. All the stuff about righting every wrong, the stuff about bringing justice, about remaking all of creation, redeeming everything, paying for your sin debt. Why would Jesus do any of it? It was his passion. It was his passion. Where do I even get that? Well, if you read Isaiah chapter 53, you're going to find a prophecy of the necessary suffering of God's Messiah. God declared centuries before the cross of Jesus Christ that the Messiah would be beaten and pierced and slaughtered. And in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, speaking of God's Messiah, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see Be satisfied. See, Jesus' passion, what he was enthusiastic about, saving people. Even you, friend, he was enthusiastic about saving even you. Verse 11 goes on to say that God's Messiah, Jesus, would know that by taking the sins of all time upon himself, He would make many to be accounted as righteous. Or if you like, to be washed from their sin. Jesus' passion, what got Jesus excited, was saving souls so that we might spend eternity at peace with Him. And that, friends, put the cross in His focus. See, he could look forward to and he can look beyond the cross because of the joy he had in knowing that terrible, of what that terrible cross would accomplish. And there's a call for each of us here. In response to Christ's joy, looking beyond that cross, the call for you and I is is to invite the Spirit to give you and I joy, to give us peace as we surrender to Christ anew in bringing Him into our focus. Every aspect of our lives depends on and will be positively transformed by Jesus. And for some of you, that involves surrendering for the first time. Coming to God, confessing, Lord, I'm a sinner. I cannot help myself. I can do nothing to right my wrongs against you. But I believe that Jesus can and that he has. Maybe the last question to ask is the one that 
our choir and praise team raised? Is he worthy of your surrender? Is he worthy of your life's passion? Is he worthy of your focus? I leave that answer to you.